Hi, welcome to Carbon Design's MindShift podcast. I'm Scott Gellum and I'll be your host today. We'll explore new ways of thinking, new technologies, and new insights to help drive business performance. So let's get started. All right, today we're with a special guest with us today, Carlos Hildalgo, who is the author of The Un-American Dream. And Carlos, just as way of FYI, tying back to uh, the carbon design connection here, I read when, as I was reading the book, I realized we were going through very similar things at very similar times, 2017. Mm. Um, and so I found the book to be highly mm. relatable, incredibly honest. And I think, you know, as I was reading it, I could think of two or three people that I want to recommend it to. One of which his relationship ended through a lot of the same things that you point out in the book. And I wish I just would have had this book a year ago. Right. To give Tim to recognize this in himself. And, and hopefully that could have helped. They're, they're some of our best friends. And, and so I think this book, if it can help people or prevent, you know, that from happening in a relationship. And I think it's fantastic. It's not only a good read from a business standpoint and really understanding your priorities in life, but from a relationship standpoint as well. So welcome. Well, thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Always good to talk to you. And uh, I'm glad the book resonated. And it, it, the reason I wrote the book was to help people and to learn from my failings and my mistakes and that people don't have to go down that same road. And hopefully they, they use this as a warning sign to say, hey, there is a better way. And there's a different way to achieve success than sacrificing your relationships at the professional altar. Yeah, definitely. So you've gotten some negative feedback by, about the title? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You're a marketer. You always try to think what's going to grab people. Um, I've had people ask me, is it a political book? I think if you look closely, there's only one subtle reference into today's political climate, but it is no way a political book. It is really based on, you know, John Truslow Adams first coining the term the American dream in 1931. Right. When I looked at that, and then I look at what we're doing today, it truly is un-American, you know, what we're, what we're striving for today. So, yeah, and I've had people ask me, you know, what is with the anti-patriotism and <laughs> things like that. And all I said is, read the book, just read the introduction. Yeah. And I don't really take a lot of time to explain this isn't a political book. I, I write about what, who the book is for. And so I have, I've had some people kind of raise some eyebrows on the title, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. And um, I've also had people tell me what's in the book is unattainable, and it's just not realistic. And that's fine, too. I, I can't change what people think or how people are going to react. I just wrote from the heart. Yeah, yeah. And as we were talking earlier, I mean, the fact that you had an open and honest conversation with your wife about actually writing this and having her participate mm. in it pretty amazing. Uh, I think back to American snipers, you know, the time I think I've seen someone, you know, allow the spouse to actually have the opposite side of that, that conversation. So what was the inspiration to do that? How did you get your wife to agree? Cause it's really an honest, uh, and sometimes probably very difficult part of the, the book, I'm sure for you. Yeah. You know, the inspiration for me was what I went through when I left my first agency. At that point, I was on the cusp of a divorce. I was so distant from my kids because I had spent so much time on the road trying to land the next client, 
speaking at industry events and trying to promote my first agency and my personal brand. And then I had a wake up call of, you know, kind of hitting that rock bottom and saying, what have I done all this for? Everything that I thought I was working for is now gone. And I put a post on LinkedIn on why I was leaving my first agency. And I was overwhelmed by the number of calls and emails I got saying, how did you do this? I'm in the same boat. I am miserable. And that was to me like, wow, okay, so I'm not alone. And I'm, I'm not the only one. And so that's when the idea first came to me. And then, but I needed to work on myself first. So I spent some time and uh, found a really great therapist who helped me work through a lot of things and get back to my true self. And I do write about some of the things that how, how far I veered from my true self in the book. And then as I was writing, I just, there were just something gnawing at me saying, okay, something's missing here. And when I talked to Suzanne, and obviously we had talked before I even started writing the book, I originally asked her to write a forward. And then I said, you know, babe, I really want you to write a chapter. And I was as persuasive as possible. There was no, you know, you have to do this. And, and I don't think that's ever healthy. Yeah. But I just said to her, I said, I, I think it's vital and important that entrepreneurs, business owners, professionals see the impact of our actions on relationship. And I can't write your story. Yeah. Only you can. And then I said, I also think it's important for people on the other side of that unhinged business pursuit to read that and say, I'm not crazy. This is valid. And so I was very grateful when she said, I'll do it. And she spent a lot of time. She put a lot of thought, a lot of heart, a lot of vulnerability into the chapter. And honestly, it's my favorite chapter. And I think it really brings the book together. Yeah, I would agree. How would you describe this book to someone? It's not, it's not just a business book. It's not, right. it's, that's some of the, you know, relationship in here. You got some self-improvement. How would you describe to someone what the book is if you had to put it in a category or categories? Yeah, that's been really hard. We've been all over the map. And uh, thankfully, Amazon gives us 10 categories. And if you saw them, you'd be like, okay, what is this a business book? For me, it is a book for somebody who says, whether you're a professional or not, I want to step off this hectic, always connected treadmill that we as Americans are on. And I think if you talk to just about anybody in America today and you say, how are you doing? It's, oh my God, I'm so busy. I'm so, we have this, we have that. And it's like, hey, we just need to calm down. We need to relax. And we are a frenetic society. Yeah. And so if somebody would say to me, what is the book about? I would say, yes, I wrote it from the perspective of an entrepreneur and a business owner and a professional, but it's really a book to say, stop, the, what is the frenzy for and reassess your personal and professional relationships and define success on your term. So I don't know that there's a clear category for it. Yeah. I think we just were listed today as a, on a woman's health site on five ways to understand the inner workings of a man. If, if you can do that, God bless you, but five, five books. And we were listed as one. So I think it spans a lot of different categories, but it's really an invitation to say, slow down and stop the frenzy. Yeah. You mentioned about the pursuit of happiness and, and having to choose happiness. Why do yeah. people, I mean, it seems very intuitive that you would want to be happy. Why, why do you think people have a hard time getting that? I think we're waiting on things and people to make us happy. Yeah. And uh, things and people can never make us happy. 
And what's really interesting is my, my uh, we reference it in the book about my wife's work in Uganda. She just got back a couple of weeks ago and she brought my 20-year-old daughter and my 17-year-old son. And when I, I sat down with my 17-year-old son over breakfast, uh, when he got back and I said, so tell me about the trip. And first thing out of his mouth, he said, dad, I realize that happiness is a choice. Hmm. And he said, doesn't mean life's going to be great. He said, but I can choose to be happy. He said, when I spend 12 days with people who have faced what the Ugandans have faced and have nothing, yeah. he said, and they're happy and joyful and laughing and telling me how much they love me. He said, it kind of makes me realize that things and people aren't going to bring happiness. And, and I know people who are loaded. I know people who are unbelievably wealthy and have built great businesses. And they're some of the most miserable people on the planet. Yeah. I think we every day have to make a choice. Are we going to choose happiness and love? Are we going to choose negativity and anger? And the more we put our stock in people and things to bring that to us, the more we're going to be disappointed. People fail us because we're humans and things go away. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, millennials have taken a lot of hits in terms of their work ethic and uh, their dedication to like, maybe they're just getting this better than we are. Our generation, you know, I went down a very similar path as you did and, yeah, you know, regret some things early in my life. And I, I remember sending my son when he was born, uh, ended up having a really bad high count of rubella and had you know jaundice really bad. And we were in the hospital and forget about paternity leave, which was ridiculous that I didn't even consider that. I was taking a conference call, sitting in the hospital bed with my wife and thinking, what the hell's wrong with me? I mean, right. you have certain times, as you mentioned in your book, where these things just hit you in the face, like, what am I doing? Yeah. Do you think maybe millennials have a little bit better grasp on and want to choosing happiness and, and balancing and, and creating those boundaries, as you say? I think some do. And I've seen some and it really upsets me to hear when people say, well, they're just lazy. Yeah. I was part of a thread this morning where, you know, it, somebody was equating the hustle and the burn the candle at both ends to hard work. And my response was, I, I still work really, really hard. Right. And that was modeled for me from the time I was a kid, but it doesn't mean I'm willing to sacrifice everything else. So that's not hard work. Um, so I think some millennials do, and I kind of see two camps where it's those who get it and are striving for that balance or what I talk about as boundaries. And then there's also those who are convinced that the only way to get ahead is to be that scarce resource. Yeah. And that's why I think I just read an article last week that said they're starting to be called the burnout generation. And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing, as a matter of fact, that generation is the highest consumer of alcohol in our country. And liver disease is now starting to appear in 20-somethings and early 30-somethings. And you're like, why is that? Well, it's because of alcohol consumption, because they're trying to keep up, yeah. trying to medicate, they're trying to you know, find some meaning in life. Well, right. it's not work. So I think there's two camps and, and I, I applaud those who do have it figured out and say, this is something I'm not willing to do. And I, even if it means not progressing as fast up my career, I'm going to take care of my own self and provide what I need so that longer term, I can be the best self to my relationships and to my employer. Yeah, that's great. And I, I like the fact that you, in the end of the chapters, give 
you know, people some questions to think about their situation and also some tips. Yeah. Um, you know, move through forward. But what do you say to someone that says, great, you know, Carlos read the book. I totally agree about setting boundaries. The problem is I don't feel like I have control over that either in their personal life or their professional life that they feel like they have the control to be able to set boundaries. What do you, what do you tell people like that? I would say that's a fallacy in many respects. I would say there's probably a few circumstances. I'm not going to use the word always because I think that's a trap, but uh, that's why I put the corporate profiles in the back. And if you read the corporate profile of Claire Potter and L. Wolf, these are two very smart, uh, driven women who went to their organizations. Actually, Claire was part of a, of a, of a company that is a multi-billion dollar Fortune 500 and said, here's my new job. And if you can't give me this because of the birth of my child, I'm going to have to leave. And then L uh, turned down a larger position in a more renowned company to take a position of a CMO in a tech startup and basically outlined for her to be employer. This is what you're going to get. And here's what you're not going to get. Yeah. So I think anytime we say, well, I don't have control of that. Nobody's putting a gun to your head and making you stay at a job. Nobody's making you go down to your home office and return those emails at 10 o'clock at night. And what I am finding is that managers and executives are being more receptive to this message because they're starting to understand when my employees are at their peak of whole health, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, I'm going to get the best out of them. And I've seen the same in myself. My work product is far better than it's ever been in my career because I'm finally taking care of myself and I'm taking care of those relationships that are so important to me. So I guess the question then is, are you happy? Oh, my word, beyond uh, happy, content, fulfilled. And it has nothing to do with my work. And don't get me wrong. I love what I do. My wife is my business partner, which has been awesome. And I love doing that together. But what fulfills me and what makes me happy is it isn't the work. I do get, I take pride in what we do and the results we drive for our clients. Yeah. But it's really where I'm at in life. And it's, it started with getting back to my true self and who I am as a person and recognizing that I really like myself. I really, uh, I know I sound kind of like Stuart Smalley, but <laughs> I really do love where I'm at, love who I am. And I am beyond fortunate and blessed to be in the situation I am, uh, especially coming through what we came through. Yeah. If someone's in your same kind of situation that you're in, you found yourself in years ago when you were starting and founding your company and growing your company, where you kind of get caught up in what people are telling you and you kind of get caught up in your own ego and your own kind of momentum that you've got going and it's difficult to listen to anybody to give you advice to, to know that, Hey, you're off the tracks. What would you, if you could look back at your, you know, yourself in those years, what would you say to say, Hey, look, no, look out for this, or here's a trigger. Here's something that could help stop that because you, you kind of become more, like you say, you, it's a spiral. Like you just keep getting yeah. and insular and it's very difficult to have anybody influence you once you're in that. And I would say that's the first place to start. If you're in a spot where nobody, no matter what anybody says, doesn't penetrate, that's a red flag. Yeah. Because uh, my family was very vocal at saying, hey, here's what we need from you. And I constantly was like, okay, yeah, whatever. So I think that's, that's the first. If you're not, if you've stopped listening to people um, and really hearing them 
And, uh, and so that's number one. Number two, if when they're speaking, you're ultimately defensive and you're saying, how come you can't support me? Or they're not saying they don't support you. What they're saying is, hey, maybe you need to recalibrate and rethink because this is what we really need. Thirdly, for me, if you're putting more stock in what people are saying in terms of those on the periphery, those who hear you speak and come up to you after and go, hey, that was a great speech. Can you sign my book? I think those people are genuine, but are those the people that really you're going to build a relationship with? Is that where you're placing your identity is in that vanity praise because you spoke for 45 minutes and you were an eloquent speaker? That's another one. And then when you tie your identity to your professional achievements and when you're tying your worth to the professional achievements and the way you know that is when that voice of shame starts to roar really loudly when something goes wrong. And so if you're doing all of that, and then lastly, if you're not communicating with your significant other, your closest of relationships, your therapist, whomever it is, and not being really honest about what is keeping you up at night, do you even like yourself? Those are some things that you really need to take stock of and say, I'm on a bad trajectory. And one day you will wake up and say, how the heck did I get here? Because that's what I did. Yeah. Talk more about that shame monster you were constantly wrestling with. Where do you think it came from? You know, how did you finally uh, reconcile that feeling? Yeah, I think it's it's one thing that we as 7 billion humans, as Tim Washer likes to say, all have in common. We all, and Brene Brown talks about shame resilience because it never really goes away. Yeah. Uh, for me, it came from my childhood. I... You know, I was growing up, I wasn't, I really didn't hit my athletic stride until I was about 16. So I had a brother, older brother who was pretty athletic. My dad grew up doing athletics and I always felt I needed to prove that I could do things. And that seeped into business. Uh, I had to prove that I could land that big account. And I was constantly trying to prove myself to God knows who, most more, more so myself, and just really put that voice to shame. And, you know, where it became loudest was when I got laid off in 2001. And all of a sudden, I went from being a, a director in a global organization to literally unemployed in a matter of minutes and going back to painting houses. Yeah. And rather than, than taking pride in the fact that I was going to do whatever I needed to do to support my family, I let that voice of shame say, look at what a loser you are. Look at how you've fallen. And I never communicated that with Suzanne. I kept it internal. And it's in the silence where that shame festers. And so the way I combat that today is I get back to, and I write about this, and I stole from, well, stole, credited Kelly Flanagan, who wrote the book Lovable. And I got to really understand what is the one note that I've been put on this earth, that I believe I've been put on this earth to play. And for me, that's helping people. I love to help people. And um, that's my one note. And it doesn't make my one note better than anybody else's. But I spent a lot of time in discussions with Suzanne, introspection, again, meeting with my therapist, trying to find and say, what is it that drives me? So it doesn't matter if I'm helping my neighbor with his landscaping, writing a book, or putting together a plan for a client or advising them on career advice. When they come and say that was helpful, those are things that are fulfilling for me. And so that way, when shame comes and says, hey, you really suck, (laughs) or 
you were not good in that presentation or whatever it is, right? You really failed as a father or a husband today. Yeah. I, instead of using the word but to refute it, I use the word and where I can say, yep, you're right. I did suck in that presentation today. And I still know my one note and I'm still worthy. And the identity is rooted in my true self and who I am as a son of God. So I practice shame resilience. I don't have it conquered. That voice is still there. Sometimes it's louder than others, but it's something that I practice and I communicate that with Suzanne when I'm feeling that, when I'm feeling anxious, when I'm feeling nervous, when I'm feeling like, gee, I just did the final proof of this book and I don't know if anybody's going to read it. Yeah, true. You bring up a really interesting point. Men have a tendency to define themselves by what they do. And it's a challenge for us. So I mean, what can we do as, as men to try to get better balance? How do we go beyond just, and I can remember going through layoffs, uh, just like you, how it really affected, you know, my ego, my yeah. relationships. And it was all about how I was feeling about myself. So what can men do to try to create a little balance if, if that's even possible? I think first and foremost, we should take pride in working hard. And I don't care what it is. That's what my friend Keith told me. I'll actually be seeing him uh, this week, so I'm pretty excited. But when he told me when I was 23, I don't think God cares what we do. He cares how we do it. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't really take that to heart. So I think there's pride in hard work, and there should be pride in accomplishment. But I think as men, what we need to do is say, what is it that makes me, me? So I started to say, oh, it was achievement. It was the big account. It was how much revenue we could drive and how many employees we were getting, how many Inc. 5000s, those things are so fleeting. And I think as men, we should be saying, what am I doing today to invest in my whole health? What am I doing today to invest and give the best of myself to my relationships, to my spouse, to my significant other, to my best of friends, to my children, and take pride in that and then say, what is it that really moves me? What is it? And I think in our culture, we've been programmed to say, hey, you know, as men, we don't, we're the tough men, we don't show uh, emotion or things like that. And I'll be the first to say over the last couple of years, and, and my wife and I joke about it, is I cry more than she does. <laughs> and it feels good. It feels good to emote because, and I, I've done it over various things. Things move me and I, that's who I am. Yeah. And I'm not afraid to show that. Yeah. And I think people, I've been in situations where it makes people a little uncomfortable. And I'm like, it's not like I'm doing it on cue, yeah. but when things move me, I'm going to show that. And I think we really have to say, work aside, professions aside, career ambitions aside, what is it that moves us? What pulls us? And it may, once we discover that, like my one note, it may change the path and trajectory of our professional career. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you a little story about your book actually helped me understand something that was uh, very hurtful that happened years ago to me. I was in, working in a management consulting environment, uh, a lot of Ivy Leaguers, type A people, not me. Mm-hmm. And I always <laughs> had this insecurity, right? And we had an offsite and we had a facilitator and we were going around and the partners are in the room and we were talking about, you know, really team building things. And first thing was kind of like the art. We went through an exercise of if there's anything we felt towards each other, you would express that. 
And a person who I consider to this day to be a very good friend to me said he resented me for being happy. Huh. And it hurt my feelings today. And, and the book helped me. So I never fully figured that out until I read your book and I realized I was setting boundaries. Like my family was most important for me. It wasn't necessarily career. It was my family. And it's not because I came up with that. It was my wife helped right. know when I was going off the tracks and I was traveling on like yourself. So I was completely related to that. You know, life consultants are on site a lot and everything else. But she really helped me understand to be able to create these boundaries. And you know what? It took me longer to progress up the career ladder right. in that environment because I set boundaries. At the end of the day, this person had a difficult relationship at home and and, and maybe it was a little bit about where, what he was going through at the time. Huh. But it hurt, it hurt me deeply. But now I kind of figure out what he, where he was coming from and understand him a little bit you know, better. But that was, that was incredibly helpful. I, I never would have picked anybody would say, hey, you know, you're always happy. And that really bothers me. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, to your point, I think what you're getting at is that actually says a, more about him than it does you. And again, I've had people say to me, this is unattainable. You live in a panacea. You know, this thing. Okay. I, I, I'm not, I know I've done it. I've helped others do it. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. And, you know, if nobody gets their marketing plan on Monday, nobody's going to die. Right. And it's important. Not saying, you know, to, to you know, be lazy. But at the end of the day, I can only give the best of me if I am on the right path and I'm holistically healthy. Right. And that's a good point. How much responsibility do managers have in helping people? Great question. I think as managers and leaders in companies, you have a huge responsibility to set the tone and build a culture, not just in word only, but in action. And so I know for me, if I could go back to my first agency, I talked about taking time off and work where you're, when you work the best and no vacation time. But I was the first one for a long time to send an email at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And so if I put myself in someone's shoes and I got an email from my CEO at 10 o'clock at night, you're sitting there saying, I know what he says, but what he's doing is completely contrary. I better respond. And so I think as managers and executives, you should be setting a tone and an example for your company together work on those boundaries. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how big these, you know, some whoever's reading this, whether it's a startup or a Fortune 500, what are the boundaries you're going to enable and equip and empower your people to embrace and put in place? And what are you going to follow yourself? What is so important at 1030 at night or 11 o'clock at night or 2 a.m. that you have to send that email or you have to say, I need this. Boom, 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 boom. Why can't it wait? And I think when you do that, what you'll find, and I've seen the companies that are doing this, they're getting more from their employees. They're getting a better work product, better creativity, and they themselves are also better for it because they're setting. And that's the thing with boundaries. We think about boundaries protecting our personal space. My boundaries protect my work. Yeah. I get more done between 8 and 5.30 because that's my boundary when I work. And then I don't have to worry about it. I'm done. Right. So it, it works both ways. Yeah. 
I was on a call. We were in a competitive situation on Monday. It's a global project. Parent company's out of Switzerland. And I was trying to explain carbon design yeah. versus their digital agency that they had. And one of the things, one of the questions they asked us was, after we're done with the initial build of this website and some things that they wanted along with that, who will stay with them, right? And because they they finally understood our model was built off of freelancers and contractors. Yeah. And, and they, I think they thought they all disappeared. And I said, look, a digital agency is more likely to have turnover than we are. We've built a company to facilitate people's work styles and life, and they're not going to leave that. They've already chosen the path. And so they're not going anywhere. The people in the digital agencies might leave to take it to it allows them to work when they want on the things that they want, where they want, when they want. And so I don't know that we'll win this because for the Swiss, that was a little bit of a a mind boggler that a company could operate like that. But we do, we do have a superior, I believe a superior business model because it's built around people and how they want to work and everybody wants to work differently. And to think that you could, we're back in the industrial age, really this traditional nine to five or eight to six environment where you're working eight or nine hours straight, that was pre-electricity. And so to to still think that that's the way, and you had to own employees. Well, it's it's a very old way of thinking. And I also think about when I started my career, when I left my office, I was done. I didn't have a laptop. I didn't, and I know I'm dating myself. I didn't have this device that makes it so easy for us to stay connected and sit on the couch and check emails and just one more thing. And so I think with the advent of that, we fell into this, oh, well, let's work life blend. And I read a post today from a guy who says, well, I love my work. Great. I do too. But it shouldn't be the center of all things. And, and you just said it in that you're building a company based on humans. And when you think about that, as human beings, we are fundamentally rewired for relationship. We are not wired for our devices and we're sure as heck not wired for work. We are wired first and foremost for relationship. And you can probably go through an organization and look at work product and work quality. And those that are higher, and I've never done a study, this is a pure gut, I'm totally projecting here. But I would would venture to guess that those who have high value, strong relationships are doing better work across the board. I totally agree. So your TED talk in here a couple times, uh, what's been the reaction of women? I mean, as a guy reading a book, I immediately could relate to it and could see myself in it. But what do they think of Suzanne's chapter? What do they think of the book overall? Uh, For Suzanne's chapter from both men and women, I have, we have both received nothing but, wow, extremely powerful, honest, authentic, vulnerable, and the appreciation of thank you for presenting that view. And again, I was thrilled that she agreed to do it because it was a, it was a big thing yeah. for her to put herself out there. And then from women overall, uh, the book has resonated because I don't, I think men tie more to the identity thing, but I don't know that this, if you're going to succeed, you have to work all hours. Right. It is just subject to men. I think in our culture today, we're seeing it affect both men and women, and I've received great feedback and, and reviews from from both sides saying this is a book that's needed in our day and age. And I, I point to Ariana Huffington, right, who started a whole site, Thrive Global, 
unending to burnout. And it was basically driven from her story. So what would you say to people like Elon Musk said that, you know, in their attitudes towards work and the employees that work for him and their, their dedication that he expects? I would say he's got his priorities way out of whack. And, um, you know, he mentioned, he came out with some quote, nobody changed the world on 40 hours a week. Tesla's a really cool brand. It's a really cool car. I don't know that it's world changing. And I think what we have to look at is what worlds are we looking to change? So for me right now, I want to change my world, the world of my wife. And when I say change, I mean impact for the better. And that are my children. That is the world that I committed to and um, is first and foremost. Secondly, I want to change the worlds of my clients, my partners, those people that I'm fortunate enough to work with. So, you know, world changing there's very few that we could say, hey, they, they changed the world. But I think when you look at Elon Musk, if you look at Jack Ma, Gary Vee, Grant Cardone, the guys on Shark Tank who are talking about you know, this grind, this incessant grind, again, I think it's, well, what are we wired for? I think we're watching Elon out of all of them put his meltdown on center stage. And you know, Suzanne talks about, she said, I always want to talk to their partners. Yeah. What is that like? And so many of these guys, when you look at their lives, their lives are in shambles. So great. Go make all the money you want. Grant Cardone says 95 hours a week. So where in that, A, do you have to enjoy your wealth? B, do you have to enjoy your relationship? And then C, take care of yourself. There's only so many hours in the day. Like Warren Buffett said, the one thing I can't buy is time. There's only so much time and we all have the same amount of time. So I think it's crazy. I think it's nuts. I think it's toxic. And I think it's appropriately called hustle porn. Yeah, for sure. I loved your example of the the jump to the end and the Brazilian fisherman. So I think it's a really good story for people to take. Explained in very simple terms makes a really great point. So I really enjoyed that. So this looks like it was self-published. Is that correct? Okay. Yes, that is correct. Can you explain that process? Because I know some people are probably thinking, you know, we've got books in my head and I don't know how to get a publisher or book uh, agent. So talk, talk to them a little bit about the process. Yeah, you know, the first book I wanted to use a publisher just to hold me to a, a, a timeline. And um, it was good. I learned a lot. This one was so personal. I wanted complete control over it. Yeah. Um, call me a control freak. But when you write your own story, it's kind of you really do want to make sure that everything in it is what you want it to be and not a copy editor who's never met you. So the first thing is I did is I I went out and I copied a hired copy editor. So Katie Martell, it was a a colleague and a friend before. And I would say through this process, I can't say enough about her and the time she spent with both Suzanne and I and the investment in herself and building into the story and, yeah, the book wouldn't be what it is without Katie. So I hired Katie. We worked together. I had already had multiple chapters written. I don't write probably like a typical author. I don't produce an outline and then write to the outline. And even through the writing of this, there was many times I was like leaving a conversation. I'm like, that's a chapter. (laughs) And so I would come home and within a week, I'd have another 7,000 words. And I'd be like, okay, Katie, don't kill me. (laughs) <laughs> but it's not in another chapter. And so I'm very much stream of consciousness writer. And she took all of that and made it personal. And then uh, what I did is I hired another group, uh, Stress-Free Book Marketing, 
to help me get it on Ingram Spark, which handles Barnes and Noble, but pretty much handles everything but Amazon. Yeah. And then also do the KDP, the Amazon publishing. And then I hired a PR firm group at uh, Convey Communications have been awesome. And we met, uh, we had lunch, I think back in March in Arizona, sat down, told her the goals, what I wanted to do, share with her our story. Well, Suzanne and I were at that lunch and said, here's what we want to do. And then being a marketer, I have marketed the living daylights out of this thing as best I know how, utilizing my network. So there are groups out there. If people want to connect, I'm more than happy to point them in the right direction. But I'm glad I did it this way because it really did give Suzanne and I the oversight and control and make sure that the end product was something we could really stand behind and, and be proud of. Yeah, well, it, uh, it's a great book. As you're writing it, did you think of a, a theme or a topic for another book? And if sometimes doctors <laughs> are going through collecting, this is like, well, that doesn't really fit in this book, but, or would you even after you've gone through this process, even consider writing something else? The third book is going to be, why the hell am I writing a third book? Because yeah. um, it is a process. Right. Now, it's interesting. I was talking to a good friend the other day. He said, I was surprised that you didn't put this in. This one was hard to write, but also therapeutic in so many ways and necessary. So I do have some things kind of percolating. I'm going to enjoy this one a little bit. And uh, I have kicked around some titles, which I'll keep to myself at this point. Because as soon as sometimes I say it, I'm like, ah, I don't know. But this one, this one for me was great. It may be my last. I don't know. I've got nothing inside me that is saying, hey, go do the, the third one immediately. There's nothing pushing me there. I'm going to enjoy this. We head out on vacation tomorrow. So I'm going to decompress. And then I'm going to write an article about how the world was still spinning on its axis when I got back after not checking email for 10 days. <laughs> Good one. All right. Well, I appreciate your time today and good luck with the book. It's, uh, I think, you know, at least for me, it was uh, really eye-opening. As I said before, really, it connected me to some things out of my past. I'm going to let my wife read. My first impression was when I read Suzanne's chapter, I'm like, I have to let my wife read this. And then I'm like, I don't know if I should do that. <laughs> I don't know if I want to deal with what might come out of that, out of that uh, process. But yeah. You know, Probably a really good thing because I know she had. We in fact we talked yesterday when I was uh, reading this about the part about being lonely and how that's very different between at least the way I was viewing her being lonely because that mm -hmm. definitely was, was mentioned because we have two kids and she loved the career to stay home with the kids in the way that she viewed being lonely and so if it can open up some conversations for people that they see themselves in this book or they see their relationships I think it's a, it's an awesome thing and if we're able to change the way that we approach work and the way that we manage people. There's so many good things to come out of this book. So uh, congratulations. Great. Great read. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the time, Scott. Always good chatting with you. And uh, yeah, share it with your wife. It'll be a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. I'm sharing it with each other. <laughs> All right. I'll check in in a couple of weeks. See how that went. That's good. Enjoy your vacation. I will. Thanks so much. <laughs>